I can't think of anybody who epitomizes the substratum of managing huge responsibilities as my next guest who is about to come to us today. I had the privilege of entertaining President Sirleaf while she was uh, last night in our home. And I said, you have made history, not only in the many accomplishments that you've made around the world, but you are the first Nobel Peace Prize laureate uh, to ever grace our house. Her rise to power against all odds is absolutely staggering. I took the liberty of describing her as a female Mandela. In the midst of hardships and adversities, she has distinguished herself amongst all other peers and risen to a level of power that has been unprecedented, not only in her home country of Liberia, but on the continent of Africa and around the world. She is the first and only black woman to be elected president of a country around the entire world. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, Her Excellency, President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Make her welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Have a seat. Make yourself at home. Get real comfortable. Wow. I have uh, had the opportunity to interview several people, but this is a daunting task because your life is so varied and, and so... Interesting. I told you when you were at my home that we should make a movie about your life. (laughs) Let's start uh, and not assume that everybody present understands the course and the path of Liberia. Can you talk just a moment about how Liberia became a country and how it is distinctive from any other country in the continent of Africa? Well, let me first say how great it is to be here. Thank you. Uh, let me say that your reputation precedes you, uh, as you've known, not only in this country, but in Africa, all over the world. And so it's a great opportunity for me and for the many of my compatriots who are here with me. Yes, thank you. Well, Liberia's origin was part of the great West African uh, kingdoms. But then we had the slave trade. And, and that interrupted nation building in most of, our, most of our countries in Africa. Liberia was founded then by emancipated slaves uh, who went with the intention of being assimilated into the native population. And it's been growing as a nation. There was a divide uh, because of those who came and those who were there, uh, a divide that lingers to a certain extent, even today. That's what I was going to ask you. I wondered in my my own mind, because Liberia had the experience of having, as far as I know, the only country that had slaves that came back to Africa and and has a, a different background from others, has that affected the climate of the country today? Is its history in any way seen reflective in how Liberia looks at life as opposed to other countries in the region? It has to affect the thinking of people when you have uh, the attempts at assimilation not to have worked as perfectly as intention. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did have people that also were emancipated uh, from the United Kingdom that formed the country of Sierra Leone. But because of the divide, clearly, uh, that 
creates a system in the society. And I can say that today it's not as profound. I say it lingers, but it's not profound because of education, uh, because of uh, intermarriages, uh, uh, because of time. And, and so uh, today is a nation that's uh, very close to the United States because most of our, most of our people are educated here. They, they come here often, they have some of the same culture. At the same time, there's also a traditional culture, you know, an indigenous culture. And so the blending of these two perhaps uh, uh, make for a nation that's, that's different, but also has great potential. Absolutely. You know, when you, when you think about your life, I thought we would, would roll back a little bit your education also, you mentioned that earlier, is global. You had an opportunity to be educated in, here in the United States as well. And let's talk just a moment about that. What was that experience like for you? It was cold since it was the first time I got here. <laughs> <laughs> no, my first, my first trip was to, uh, was to go to a college in Madison, Wisconsin. And that's why I say it was cold. Yeah, that, that is cold. <laughs> and then did some work at the University of Colorado, the Economics Institute there. And then, of course, worked at home a bit and then came over and went to the Kennedy School at Harvard and did my master's there. So, so you, you did your master's at Harvard. And when you were going through school, was it so, did you know then that you would end up where you are now? What drove you into economics? Were you thinking about the economic empowerment of your country when you were at Harvard? Or did your destiny kind of unfold gradually? Well, we were, by the time I got to Harvard, you can say we were already uh, building the path. Mm -hmm. Because I had already been home, I had been a junior official. I had been in certain way an activist, I had taken certain positions that, that have got, got me into trouble, if you yes, may. Yes, yes. So by the time I reached there, this was the time of the Vietnam War. Okay. And I was, uh-oh, now I'm letting people know my age. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, you know, I did things like uh, joining the March on Washington and, uh, and all of that. Uh, by, by this time, I think, I, I could see uh, the potential within myself, you know, for leadership. and knew that when I returned home after training, I would be playing a very active role. I would be pursuing a career. Didn't at that point say I'm going to, you know, be president. No. Right. But I knew that I, I, I was on a journey. Okay. A journey would land somewhere. Because that is a dream when you think of a, a young woman involved in the 60s, educated at Harvard, right in the middle of the unrest here in the United States, to the very notion of a black woman becoming president wasn't a dream where you could relate it to, I want to be like so-and-so. You, you had the courage to dream a dream that had no point of reference. And I think that that's a very fascinating thing because so many times we only give our dreams permission to live within the context of what we've seen other people do. 
You have to be a certain type of person to dream beyond any point of reference and be courageous enough to make that happen. I read something about you, and uh, I want to get your thoughts on it. I was told that uh, when you were a baby, someone prophesied or spoke over your life and said, this woman will be great. Yeah, that's a story that, well, that's a truth, my it's, story. It's, mm-hmm. That um, when I was born and, and was in the bed, my mother, a baby, there's an old man that came into the room uh, to see the baby. And, and he said, looked down and said, you know, that child will be great. There was nothing in the conditions in which we lived that suggested greatness, of course. <laughs> and neither did the early years of my childhood suggest that it was going to be anything great. Uh, but uh, isn't that it's progressed? And isn't that amazing though that that somebody can see greatness in perhaps abject poverty? Nothing around the environment really suggested or lended itself toward that greatness, and yet that word was spoken over your life. And I found it fascinating because when I was born, I was born with a with a veil over my face, and a, one of the neighbors came down and told my mother. She said, "Oh, God has given you a prophet," and though. I didn't initially act like a prophet. <laughs> it took a while for that word to come to pass. Uh, I, I think the point becomes that there is a destiny and a trail that we have to blaze. Your life is a destiny trail, an inspirational trail, but it is littered with heartache and, and brokenness and trauma. You were at one point an abused wife, survived those uh, atrocities, I think as we talk about women's empowerment, you can't really embrace empowerment with talking about struggle and those periods in our lives that look like that we are such a contradiction. Our life is such a contradiction to the greatness that was spoken over your life. When you were dealing with that abuse and deciding to turn away from it, was there something in you that said, I'm better than this? You don't treat me this way? What gave you the fight back to rise above that personal pain? I grew up in a home, a Christian home. Yes. My mother was a, a pastor mm-hmm. and a teacher. And so uh, the strength that she gave to me and my siblings um, enabled her to withstand all the things that could be thrown at us during lifetime. And so I think that's, that's where the strength came from. I, I guess I always knew that when things get difficult, you, you either run to your mother you know, mm. for solace or to God you through prayers. You were raised Presbyterian and then uh, entered into the Methodist Church. I understand your yeah, I was married into the Methodist Church. Married yeah, into my the Methodist. husband was a United Methodist. How much has your faith anchored you? Very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much. Given the things that, uh, you know, I've been through those, those difficult days in prison and, and all of that, you know, there's, there's one thing you, you can hang on to is your faith and your hope. Your faith and hope in God. Yeah, that's a good clap moment right there. 
You know, there are women listening at us today who are fighting their way up the corporate ladder and having to break through glass ceilings. There are women who are fighting to keep their businesses going. There are women, perhaps, in the room who are fighting to enter into ministry. And it has its own secret glass barriers where nothing is said openly but implied privately that sometimes people don't always embrace women in the pulpit with the same kind of finesse that they engage men. Every woman in here has a story, but not every woman in this room has a story that gets her thrown in jail. Your kind of opposition went to a deeper level. Tell us about that period in your life and how you survived it. Well, um, anyone who's, who's an activist and who takes position, and in our societies, if you're not part of the establishment or you challenge the establishment, you run the risk of going to jail. And, you know, our jails are nothing to write home about. Right. <laughs> yes, I, I bet. <laughs> uh, and so it takes a lot of courage, stamina, you know, believe in yourself, first mm -hmm. of all, and, and your faith. Was it frightening? So, yeah. can be quite frightening when, you know, if goalkeepers are making rounds at night and you, you never know what, <laughs> what they would do. Right. It has to be frightening. And, of course, you, I was in, in solitary, they call it solitary confinement, mm -hmm. uh, with another young lady, anyway, uh, mm -hmm. because there were many other young people in the, in the jail also. These were all university students, university activists. I see so many people today who, who have given up on their dreams because of their fears. And the reason I underscored this whole notion of being frightened in the prison, you say, yes, it was frightening, and I know it would have been frightening for me, but you were frightened, but it didn't, it didn't shut you up. <laughs> you know, somebody would have said, you know, I'm going to fight another kind of way. That was too much for me. I'm going to write letters or, or draw paintings about this or maybe write a book. But you kept on swinging, kept on fighting in spite of the fear. And that premise, whether you're an activist or going to be a president, is a, is a premise that any champion of life must have, is to feel the fear and do it anyway, in spite of all of the reasons to be terrified. Yeah. In spite of all of the reasons to be terrified, you're a woman, you're in, in a prison, you don't know what the guards are going to do, you don't know what's going to happen to you, the mob is gone and you're alone. What does a woman tell herself when everything in her says run and yet she must fight anyway? What did you say to you? Suffering brings courage. <laughs> And so I think when you've gone through something like that and, and your, your determination is to, to rise above it, that courage, that stamina, uh, it enables you to come back even stronger. Uh, and so I think everyone should go through something like that for the holding of their lives. <laughs> It may not be jail, and I'm sure there's so many people in this room that have gone through their share of suffering, maybe a different kind, different place, mm -hmm. different time. Um, but I'm sure the, the majority have come out of it 
uh, stronger, more committed, more determined. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Suffering brings courage. I could just, I could just feed off of that the rest of the day. <laughs> Suffering brings courage. I'm just going back in my own mind because I think that some of the times, some of the most horrendous things in my life have always been the things that empowered my life. It wasn't the accolades, the good times, the trophies, the awards. It was the alienation, the loneliness, the pain, and the suffering that really built the stamina to withstand what it took to be you. You went through a lot to be you. Exiled, there was a, a coup, a military coup, uh, in the process of you moving into the place that you went to where you had to flee your own country, a country that you love. Talk to, talk to us about that. Well, you know, after being released from jail, uh, clearly if you're, you've been challenging, you know, the establishment and challenging what in effect was a military government, uh, you become targeted. And mm -hmm. so most times, you know, for your life to give you another day to fight again, uh, you have to move away and this, you know, this happens in many of our countries in Africa, I mean, it, uh, you mentioned Mandela. Right. Look, I mean, he's the champion. He's the icon for us uh, in Africa because, look. And for us as well. <laughs> uh, look what he went through from his seven years, you know, on Robben Island. Yeah. Uh, that in itself is an inspiration for many, of, many Africans, young and old, uh, to pursue their dreams. So, uh, yes. I did go into, uh, into exile. When you were in exile, you were in exile several times, as I understand, yeah. in the Ivory Coast? In, in, in this in, country? In oh, Kenya wow. and in America? Yeah. Well, Kenya, no. no. I wasn't in exile in Kenya. I was actually, after uh, the coup d'etat, I, I was recruited uh, by Citibank, so... Yeah. Australia, Citibank, vice African woman, uh, vice president of Citibank. Oh, wow. I was, in, I was based in Nairobi. That's and So it, it's, it's been, you know, exile for professional purposes, mm -hmm. exile for safety. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit of, you know, back and forth, but I guess I always knew that my real desire, my, my real objective and goal uh, was to be at home. When you were exiled to the U.S., were you still working with Citibank then? No. I was working with another bank in mm -hmm. Connecticut called uh, Equator Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a subsidiary of Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. So that's banking, finance has been, you know, my field all along. When you look at your field being finances, and that's what your master's was out of Harvard, how much has that been an asset to you as president of your country? A great asset because uh, not only the professionalism mm -hmm. that you gain, you know, working in institutions like that that have proper systems and policies and procedures and training opportunities, but also you establish contact relationships, strong relationships right. uh, that you can count on and you can tap on uh, when you need it uh, as you move on in political life. So that for me was a great asset. 
You know, when, when I was reading about you and I thought about coming out of exile, leaving the U.S. or the, this, the time that you spent on the Ivory Coast and you're coming back into your country, in my mind, being a, a Bible scholar, it to me sounded a bit like Moses coming out of exile, going back into Egypt. When you come back into an environment that you had to flee from, is there a sense of victory or anxiety? A victory in that you survived it and got to come back or anxiety that you don't know what you're going to face when you get back? A sense of hope. Hope. If I can come back, it means I've beat the former conditions mm-hmm. and the future's ahead. Yeah. Uh, now you can, you can have, you have another opportunity. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. That's good. That's good. The one thing that is very, very clear is that you are relentless. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very, very, and, and, and I mean that in the most complimentary way because I, I, I'm often asked by leaders, what is the one thing that I think you have to have above everything else in order to succeed and achieve your dream? And I tell them, you have to be relentless. You have to just keep getting up come hell or high water. You just have to keep getting up. And there are women in this room. The reason that I think that you're such a fascinating gift to our conference uh, to be here, because when you start talking about empowerment, we have people who are discouraged by so much less than what you have endured. You know, <laughs> you know they didn't give me a parking space. They don't acknowledge me at the board meeting. You know, <laughs> Americans can be quite soft. And, and and when you, start talking, you know, I, when you start talking about being exiled and you start talking about being thrown in prison and yet you came back with the spirit of hope, it is almost embarrassing for some of us. Come on, am I right? That we are deterred by so little, you know. They didn't have a seat for me. I don't have the right office. And yet with, without any of those accruedments, there was something in you that believed in yourself and believed in your calling and you kept getting up in spite of all the odds, often with nobody to encourage you but God and the voice in your own head. Is that voice and that power still in you today? Don't forget I'm a woman. That said it all. <laughs> that said it all. When, when you came back, I, I, I wondered, there's several things that I wondered. I want to digress for a moment and ask you this because I, it, it really fascinated me. Your father delved into politics as well. Yeah. I think for me in my life, what is modeled in front of us has a lot to do with what is molded in us. It's true. Do you think that him modeling that particular uh, aspiration molded something in his daughter? Yes, I do believe that. See, the ex- extraordinary part is that I grew up in both sides of the divide. Mm-hmm. I experienced the conditions of both sides of the divide. So that had to come 
from my father, who was on one side of Divide, mm -hmm. and my mother, who was halfway on one side of Divide. Oh, wow. And so... So that's like a civil war right there in the house. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite. <laughs> no, but understanding the, the uniqueness of, of that impression and influence on your life, when you finally came out, I read that you opted to run for Senate as opposed to president initially. That's correct. Okay, having won that and then taking on, there's only a certain type of people that run for president anyway. I mean, you have to be a certain kind of person to, to run for president. I don't know how to describe that. That sounds that negative. No, 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 no. No, I just don't think it's for anybody. I, I think you have to be a person who clearly has the, the thought that you could change the world to do that. And when you finally won the first time, I'm not sure, was your father living? No. What do you think he would have said that his little girl had become the president of Liberia? He would have been proud. <laughs> uh, he would have said that... Uh, we trained her right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to exceed every expectation and to move into that against all peril. What did that feel like the night or the day that you found out that you had won and everybody I imagine is cheering and going bananas? When you steel yourself and listen at your own heart, what did your heart say to your head about that moment? Get scared. Yeah, I bet. That first day. <laughs> I bet. Tired. Yeah. Because you've stayed up all night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Counting the votes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, funny because... That's, you know, go ahead. That's, go. A, that's just a passing moment because, you know, pretty soon you, you settle down and say, now comes the real job. <laughs> right, now right. comes the real test. And so... Do you think that, uh, I, I preached several weeks ago and I said, the reward for winning a battle is the next battle. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, it's the next battle. You, you earn the right to fight on the next level. And I love what you said about winning and that fear. Because often joyous moments are lost on the recipients of those moments. And everybody's cheering but the one who won because sometimes the one who won doesn't get the euphoric feeling that others get because you are blatantly aware of what this victory will cost you. And people who stand on the outside of you don't really understand what's going on inside of you, nor do they often know what to say to you because they think you feel like they feel and sometimes you feel, you feel guilty that you don't feel like they feel because you are so aware that God has got me into something that I need him <laughs> to get me out of. And, and, you know, oh, when you settled down and you took on the real calling, because you almost have to be called to presidency, the real calling of making my nation greater than it was before I walked into this position 
and all of the complications of that reality. I'm wondering what you said, because I asked President Obama, I asked him what was the most amazing thing he learned when he became president of the United States. He said that the problems were so much more complicated than he would have imagined. And that problems that made it to his desk had passed by many smart people before they got to him. And only the problems that were the most profound and complicated ended up on his desk and ended up on his heart, I'm paraphrasing, all night long. What's been on your heart for Liberia? How can we turn our natural assets, natural resources, our God-giving endowment into prosperity for all people in the midst of all, all the difficulties? I was struck when I read that you said having completed one term and having the freedom to go back and grow your garden, if you would have liked, you said, I'm not finished yet. And you were how old then? You know, I stopped counting the age. <laughs> you, got, you got past me. You got past me. The, the reason I bring it up, the reason I, and I, I know you're not supposed to ask a lady her age, but I, I read the numbers. The astounding thing is I thought, you could have gotten away. You could have said, I did it. I'm through. I made history. I changed the world. Bye. And you said, I'm not finished yet and jumped in again. Do you feel like you got to do in your second term as you come toward the end of your second term what you set out to do? Or, or is the complications uh, or are the situations so complicated that there's a part of you that says it's still not finished? No, we did not accomplish everything we had set out to do because there were some strong externalities. We faced three shocks. And one of those shocks was that disease, you know, that brought all of our activities to a halt. Um, most of our investors left the country, contractors left the country, technical people left the country, even our own citizens left the country out of fear. I'm sure many of you saw the scenes, you know, on your television screen. Uh, Dallas is, is particular in this regard mm-hmm. because there was a special circumstance relating to mm-hmm. that disease that took place in the affected Dallas. I want to talk so. about that disease because uh, last night I had the privilege of talking to uh, President Sirleaf. I asked her about the summit that President Obama held in Washington, D.C., the first one in the history of this country inviting African presidents from all over the continent to meet for a summit in, in Washington. And I was invited as his guest to be a part of one aspect of that summit. I asked her, was she there? She said, no, I made the decision to stay home, though she understood the magnitude of the moment. She decided to stay home because as president, her country was in crisis dealing with Ebola. You're the head woman in charge, and you get this message that my people are dying of this disease, and some are fleeing and running, and when others were running, you stayed. Stayed to do what? 
and at what peril to your own personal well-being, how many things did you have to manage to get the nation through this atrocious moment of gross devastation? And you know the buck stops with you. Stay to overcome fear. Stayed to give hope. We had doctors die, nurses die. People are afraid to go to the hospital for care, for fear that in the hospital they had contamination. And so people were dying from things even more than a disease because there were nobody to take care of normal illnesses. So that required getting out there going into some of the villages, going into some of the hospitals to help them, like I say, overcome their fear. Uh, yes, you, you take the risk, but that's what leadership is all about. You must be willing to take the personal risk if it comes to that. Uh, and so with that, I think we were able, and then our communities, again, getting them involved. Uh, in the beginning, it was, it was really... We were all terrified. You, you, you did not know what to do. I mean, this, this was an enemy that you didn't know how to fight because you couldn't see it, you couldn't feel it, you couldn't hear it. All you know was that people were dying. Uh, and so we started a bit confused and didn't know where, what to do. But we, we, we finally, like I say, determined that the only way to beat the system is to, to go at it and to organize yourselves and to get your community and people involved and have everybody take responsibility. And so with that, I think we're determined. We lost 4,000 people in the process, 4,000 plus. But all the predictions, that was another great thing. I mean, the World Health Organization say a million people are going to die within a year or so, and we challenged it and say, we're not going to die. We are not going to die. Touch your neighbor and say, we are not going to die. <laughs> against, against, against all odds, you challenge what the experts said and said we're not going to die. Against personal risk and peril to yourself, you stayed in the middle of the fight. When you started talking about organizing all of the people up under you, to fight this disease. For me, leadership is about organization. It is about inspiring and commanding and delegating all of the people with whom you have influence to a expected end. As a woman in leadership, is that difficult to coalesce that kind of cohesiveness amongst your team? And what gifts do you think that God gave you that made you able to organize because if it's not just about being a powerful a figure, which you obviously are, but it is also being able to take that power and amass a team of powerful people to accomplish an expected end. And the problem with amassing a team of powerful people is that they are also powerful and opinionated. How do you get that group of people to work together toward an expected end as you so obviously did 
what was your mindset about that aspect of leadership? That was the power of womanhood. <laughs> no, I, I'm being serious about it. I mean, I'm, I'm really saying something that I believe in because in times of crisis, women bring sensitivity and calm and moderation to things. And so that is something that maybe it comes from being a mother. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think in, in those times you find women are not going to exercise anger and hostility, you know, but, but calmness, conciliation, compromises to be able to achieve uh, the objective. And so, hey, women are powerful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here and thinking to myself, twice you have said to me, don't forget I'm a woman. And, and then you said, because I am a woman. And every time with, throughout the whole interview, you have always spoken of being a woman as an asset and not a liability. I, I think that's very interesting because many, many times when you engage women in the public square and certainly in the church world, but even in the public square in general, they see femininity as a liability. They don't, they didn't give me the job because I'm a woman. They don't like me because I'm a woman. They won't call me because I'm a woman. They don't take me seriously because I'm a woman. You don't associate being a woman with losing. You associate being a woman with winning. That's right. She said, that's right. <laughs> what do you say to the women sitting out there listening at me now who are whining about being a woman and they are saying, because I am a woman, associating it with every negativity, what would you say to them? Help me evangelize them. <laughs> I'll say what your theme is. Mm-hmm. Every woman in this room is empowered. I get it. They just need to go after their dreams and to stay with it and stay focused and rise above all the obstructions. Wow. Powerful. I hope you got that. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming to the end of my clock and I really don't want to. I want to roll it back and start over again because this is a rare opportunity. It's probably a, such a rare opportunity that many of us will never have it again. But I want to respect your time and be true to my word. So I will ask you this as a final question. If the woman who has served two terms as the president of Liberia, as a woman who has won the Nobel Peace Prize, as a woman who has withstood exile, heartache, abusive homes, traumas as a woman who graduated from Harvard, as a woman who has traveled around the world as a, as a woman who's been on the cover of Forbes magazine as the 85th most powerful woman in the world, as a woman who has, who has done the things that many women would have never dreamed of, if that woman sitting in the chair today could go back and talk to that little girl in that desolate environment where she was raised, what would you tell that little girl that would help prepare her for what was ahead? That you can pursue your dreams 
and realize them. Just have the confidence in yourself and your ability to achieve those goals. And those are the words I will leave with you today. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the president of Liberia, Her Excellency. One last word. Ellen Johnson Sirley. One last word. Yes. Last word to the men. To the men. She's got a word for the men. Men show courage when they believe in equality and opportunities. Give it up, ladies and gentlemen. Her Excellency.